Chapter 15 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 15 Infirmity of Purpose. Many modern plays which set forth interesting subject matter and contain several admirable scenes fail on their totality of artistic effect because of an apparent infirmity in the author's purpose. Unless the writer knows at every moment precisely what sort of effect he desires to produce and can communicate by contagion a clear sense of this precision of purpose, he will muddle the auditor's mind in its endeavor to follow him. If in the course of a single composition he mixes up his types his moods his styles in a discordant manner he will disperse the attention of the auditor and perplex the latter's faculty for unperturbed enjoyment it is true of course that the modern playwright need not always be actuated by a single aim his play perhaps will be all the better if he is not but there should always be apparent in his purpose what may be called a harmony of aims. But very few of the plays that get themselves produced are harmonious from the outset to the end. Nearly all of them obtrude some jarring note, some discord in the pattern. The reason for this may be undoubtedly referred to an infirmity in the author's faculty of attention on the business in hand. The hardest task on earth is to fix one's mind on anything and hold it fixed. And perhaps our playwright should be pardoned, therefore, for a uh, little wavering. This infirmity of purpose may show itself in any of three ways. First, in a mixture of types. Second, in a mixture of moods. Or third, in a mixture of styles. These three defects we may discuss in order. A playwright should always know pretty definitely whether he means to write a farce, a comedy, a melodrama, or a tragedy. Furthermore, he should communicate his purpose early to the audience, and should cling to it throughout the traffic of the stage. This assertion is not offered a priori, as an academic axiom, but it is derivable from a study of the practice of the surest artists. The entire tone of a dramatic composition must result from the author's sense of the type of task that he is dealing with, and unless this sense be definite, the tone will be disrupted into discords. It is, of course, possible and desirable to affect certain combinations of types in the course of a single composition, but the number of possible combinations is limited. It is, for instance, natural for farce to stiffen into melodrama, since in both of these types the plot controls the characters but it is not natural for farce to mellow into emotion or deepen into tragedy. Comedy can quite naturally flower into the poetry of sentiment, but it cannot attain the thrill of melodrama without sacrificing the autonomy of its characters. Tragedy will not mix with farce, though it may accentuate itself with comedy and it disrobes itself of all its sacred vestments when it descends to melodrama. As principles, these abstract statements, and other corollaries of them which we need not take the time to analyze, seem sufficiently self-evident. And yet 
the critic often finds them violated by our playwrights, and always to the detriment of the artistic fabric. It is much more difficult to determine to what extent an author may successfully attempt a mixture of moods, for this problem, unlike the problem of a mixture of types, is not based upon an abstract logic, but solely on the author's sense of the degree to which he may depend upon his audience to follow him. Since the normal audience has differed in different ages of the drama, we may best appreciate this problem if we look upon it in historical review. The ancients very simply solved the problem of a mixture of moods by dodging it entirely. The Greeks were, at any chosen moment, a single mooded people, and the Romans, who emulated them, were assiduous to imitate their singleness of mood. In the ancient drama we note always a sharp and clear distinction between the serious and the comic, with no admission of a possible commingling of the two. Any ancient play strikes at the very outset the note of that soul mood in which it is conceived, and thereafter concerns itself singly with the broadening and deepening of this invariable mood. If we are given the first few speeches of an Attic tragedy or a Roman comedy, we shall perceive at once what may be called the humor of the entire play. The ancients seem to have felt one way at one time, and another at another. But the art that they have left us affords no indication that they allowed themselves to feel two different ways at once. But this latter complexity of mood seems to have become the dominant and definitive feature of the medieval mind. The contrast may be observed at a glance if we compare the architecture of the Greeks with the architecture of the Goths. Any Greek temple exhibits the serene unfolding of a single mood, but any Gothic cathedral exhibits an antithetic unfolding of a dual mood, at the same time solemn and hilarious. Gargoyles grin at placid saints on the facades of Gothic churches and sanctity looks back on blasphemy with no dismay. It was this sharp antithesis of mood that Calderon and Shakespeare, who were writing for auditors of medieval mind, strove to attain in the glorious age of Spanish and the spacious age of English drama. Even in a solemnly religious play, like The Devotion of the Cross, Calderon carries on the action by the aid of a gracioso, or clown, and the Elizabethan habit of commingling the funny and the grim is too familiar to require comment. When, at last, in 1830, owing to a curious concatenation of historic circumstances, the future destiny of the dramatic art was placed, for the moment, in the hands of Victor Hugo, this giant had before him, on the one hand, the example of Corneille and Racine, who had imitated the ancients in their singleness of mood, and, on the other hand, the example of Shakespeare, who had agreed with the medieval desire for a commingling of contrasted moods. In the preface to Cromwell, Hugo cast his lot with Shakespeare, and thereafter, in his preachment and his practice, he pleaded for a representation of that vast and meaningful antithesis between the grotesque and the sublime, which he regarded as the greatest mood of drama. But the problem has become more delicate since the days of Victor Hugo. 
if the note of ancient life was singleness of mood and the note of medieval life was a contrast of two moods the note of our modern life has become an intricacy of many moods our existence is the most complex that has ever yet emerged in the history of mankind and quite naturally and indeed inevitably our art whose purpose is to represent our life is more complex than that of any earlier age we no longer write plays which exhibit either the gradual intensification of a single mood or a sharp and vivid contrast of two antithetic moods our purpose is rather to exhibit a multiplicity of moods through the medium of an artistry that is more intricate than that of any former period this imposes on our modern playwrights an extraordinary task of orchestration they may deal with any number and variety of moods provided that they can modulate them into harmony but the very freedom of this orchestration makes it the more difficult for them to avoid disrupting discords it would for instance be a discord if a serious love scene were ever introduced as the climax of a william collier farce and the critic must compliment mr collier for his astuteness in refusing to attempt such a scene but this error often shows its head in the course of our contemporary plays for instance in mr alfred sutro's comedy the perplexed husband there is a scene of serious sentiment at the third curtain fall which quite disrupts the mood of playful banter in which the composition for the most part is conceived what moods will mix harmoniously and what will not is a question that each playwright must determine for himself whether or not his play will strike a discord must depend on the temper of his audience and he must therefore be very sure before attempting an airy shift from one mood to another that his audience will follow him without effort our storehouses are packed with the scenery of plays which have failed merely because of an impossible or injudicious mixture of moods in this regard therefore it behooves our playwrights to attack their tasks with an artistic purpose that shall remain unfalteringly firm a more obvious error is a mixture of styles during the course of a single composition having hit a certain key of writing at the outset of his dialogue the author should maintain this to the end an instance of the violation of this principle which will be readily remembered occurred in the course of mr james forbes's interesting study of the chorus lady the first two acts of that diverting drama were written in a delectable slang but the curtain fall of the third act at which the innocent heroine was discovered at midnight in the villain's rooms was written in the conventional rhetoric of melodrama slang and rhetoric will not associate on friendly terms and a play that is written in two styles will not produce upon the auditor an impression of happiness and peace stevenson in several letters written during the composition of the beach of feliza has commented on the difficulty of clinging to a certain tone of style and never writing off the key and this difficulty may be regarded as one of the surest tests of a playwright's firmness of purpose. End of chapter 15